Welcome to Port City Politics. I'm WHQR News Director Ben Shockman. And I'm Michael Pratt. And we've got a bunch of stuff to cover today. Uh, the ballot of Wilmington's enormous lamps, uh, checking in on the legacy of Jody Green, and uh, and a couple other things. Uh, but let's you know, let's let's start with um, well, the enormous lanterns in front of the Cotton Exchange. Yes. Yeah, so I can't tell you how much I love this story um, because you know in. It's a good story, number one, but it's a little bit lighthearted, too. It's kind of there. There's some novelty to it, right? It's it's a very Wilmington-esque story, as you and I have talked about. Um, and you found this. I'm not exactly sure how, probably going through emails. Um, but we're talking about these big bronze lanterns that you've probably walked by a hundred times and never really taken notice of outside of the cotton exchange. That is correct. So um, here's I mean, if you if you missed the story, here's the elevator version is that they've been in front of the cotton exchange since the 70s. And the federal government wants them back because they were initially installed on what used to be called the Customs House and is now the Alton Lennon Federal Building. And apparently so back in, I guess, 2019 or sorry, 1919 or 1920. These things that are about a thousand pounds each, they cost like two thousand dollars at the time, which is like thirty or forty grand now. Um, so not cheap. Uh, they were mounted on either side of those enormous uh, steps that are in the front of it, and I've seen at least one photo of them from the forties. And it's not really clear how they got removed from the courthouse. Uh, the Star News used to have a. Um, almost like a rumors and overheard section where it was suggested that they were sold for scrap. But in any case, they ended up in a field behind the Board of Education building on South 13th Street. Um, and the city uh, essentially gave, declared them public property or it called them public property and gave them to the Cotton Exchange. And it seems like they didn't have the legal right to do that. Yeah, so these lanterns, I mean, we're these aren't like little lanterns that, you know, you can carry by hand. I mean, we're talking massive bronze lanterns. Um, they look cool. I mean, they're they're neat, whatever. Um, but, you know, there's a lot to unpack. First of all, I want to know, how did these things get into a, a, you know, just a vacant field behind the Board of Education building? Um, and that's part of the the mystery here and what i love so much because again these are it's not like you can just throw them in the bed of a pickup truck it would probably crush your suspension especially in the 1950s i mean these are big lanterns that have to weigh a a ton right yeah they were only able to move them when they were taken to the cotton exchange in the 70s um it was only possible because they had a backhoe a forklift and a big like a large large truck like a deuce and a half you know and, yeah, the funny part is uh, we found an oral history of the Cotton Exchange where one of the founders is talking about someone told him that there are these, you know, these really nice lamps and they've been found in a field and they were overgrown and they were worried about someone running them over. So he drove down there in a Pinto station wagon, um, <laughs> hoping to pick up these six foot tall, collectively one ton of lamp. And, uh, yeah, that wasn't going to happen. So yeah, here's although I really I, I really admire the moxie it takes to just even think that the Pinto was up to that task. Um, <laughs> I know, I know. Just isn't is a whole another glorious part of this story. So um, so 
Yeah. So these lanterns, they end up in a field. The city then eventually goes, you know, they went through their their process of giving them to the cotton exchange. There are meeting minutes of that, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and it's it's interesting because there's no formal acknowledgement of their provenance, of, of where they're from. They're just described as having been public property. And, you know, it's based on the recollection of the mayor at the time. Um, that mayor has since passed away. And so what we're missing in this story, what I, what I admit I was not able to find, was we, we, we found a record of the, the lanterns all the way through uh, the 40s and 50s. I initially thought that they might have been removed during World War II. Uh, mm-hmm. There are all kinds of measures up and down the coast to, you know, t- to dim lights around federal buildings and ports. So it wasn't that. Um, it's just a 20-year gap that we can't find any record of them. And apparently during that time, they were somehow taken to this field. But the reason that's important and the reason uh, the good folks at the New Hanover County Public Library local history room are still kind of working away at this, because when I told them about this, they were fascinated, too. Yeah. Is that if the federal government sold them for scrap and Mm -hmm. and then someone else abandoned them, then North Carolina's abandoned property law would probably apply here. Again, I'm not an attorney, but. In general, that's how this kind of thing works. Um, but if if they never actually, you know, signed the paperwork, and again, this has to be Congress or a congressionally authorized agency, has to like, it's the federal government. They're they're very anal retentive, so there's got to be a document somewhere that says, you know, we hereby dispose of his property in in whatever way. If we can't find that, then technically, this is still federal property, and they have every right to come and ask for them back. But if they did give them away or sell them to someone, then I think Wilmington has a good claim to them. Yeah. So, you know, this was something that you uh, that you and I were talking about on Twitter. Um, former Wilmington City Councilman Paul Lawler actually chimed in and said, um, you know, we were basically having a spirited d- discussion over, um, you know, whether or not Wilmington is in the wrong. And, you know, to be clear, we don't know. We we don't have any evidence of that. But the way I look at it is, um, you know, simply because, you know, the city said that they that they did something. Um, I, I guess my my issue is not everything needs to go in front of a judge. Like if you don't have proof of ownership, but you have that piece of property um, until you can prove me otherwise, you know, that that does seem to be the federal government's property. I mean, they're the ones that spent the money on it. You know, ultimately, the taxpayers paid for them. Um, so it's that that is kind of a frustrating part of this that, you know, basically say, well, if you don't have proof that I didn't do this wrong, then it's mine. It's like, no, that's that's not really how it works. If I have the title to my grandmother's car, but you swear up and down, she gave it to you 20 years ago, but you don't have the title that's my property until you can prove that that car was properly given to you. Um, whether or not there was an oral agreement or someone, you know, just was like, yeah, yeah, get rid of those lamps, which I can't really figure out or imagine why they would just say, yeah, dump those in a field somewhere. But, you know, the argument is to me until there's evidence that they were properly given away, that is the federal government's property. And I'm okay saying that as my opinion, because, that is pretty much how the law of possession of ownership does work. Yeah, and the the thing I'll add is that I, I take some people's point that 
and again, we don't have all the details, and I'm still waiting for an opportunity to speak to the Cotton Exchange folks. They've they've sort of been hesitant because this could actually become litigation. The, the federal government could actually file a suit against them. Um, so I understand why they might be hesitant to talk to a journalist. But it's my sense that the federal government sort of came in strong here um, in, in not a very conciliatory way. So from what we can tell, back in 2015, the, the General Services Administration, which is um, basically the the federal property manager. They they run mm-hmm. about a half trillion dollars worth of property. So somehow in in a half trillion dollar, you know, management portfolio, they were looking for these lanterns. But <laughs> it was because the the federal courthouse, the Alton Lennon courthouse is coming up on its was coming up on its centennial, which would have been in 2019. And they thought, mm-hmm. "Hey, it'd be nice to spruce this thing up a little bit." And they were looking at some old, I guess, some old plans or drawings and noticed that they used to have these big bronze lanterns. And they said, hey, we should find those. Uh, and then Hurricane Florence came through in 2018 and really, da- I mean, destroyed everything. I mean, just a lot of damage around Wilmington, but really did a lot of damage to the courthouse. And it took years for them to get the contract to start renovating that. I think in 2021, they f- like three years after Florence, they finally got the contract in place, a 30 plus million dollar contract to remediate mold and, and fix storm damage. Right. But that seemed, right around that time, seems to be when they, in earnest, started really looking for these lanterns. And apparently that's when a federal agent with the GSA uh, actually rolled up into the cotton exchange, from what I can tell, and basically said, we want our lanterns back. Like, cold called them. Which, you know, again, it seems like, you know, we don't know, but this, the city did seem to have a kind of loosey-goosey way of, of, of just giving these lanterns, which weren't which may not have been technically theirs to give away, but all right. The, the city change... of Wilmington being loosey goosey is um, not. Uh, it's. I'm glad to see that they're staying true to form. Let's put it that way. Yeah, but if I ran the Cotton Exchange and and I had you know had these lanterns for almost half a century, and there's out of nowhere a federal agent just showed up and said, "Give them back," I I might be taken aback. I might be that might rub me the wrong way, but this is what happens. I'm reminded, so I'm talking about this with a, a friend of mine who knows federal law pretty well, and um, reminds me of when I was a kid, and I found, like, a $5 bill, and uh, I told my, my dad, I was like, hey, look what I found. He's like, you didn't find that. I was like, yeah, it is. He's like, no, because it was not lost. That is my $5. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's where we're at. Um, so the, the, the sort of the timeline for a formal response to the federal government from the city of Wilmington, the Cotton Exchange passed last Friday, I believe. And mm-hmm. the uh, one of my favorite parts about the story is that the um, the assistant federal prosecutor who dropped this bomb on the city of Wilmington then promptly went on vacation for three weeks. Ah. So all my emails to him immediately bounced back and got the uh, I'm, all, I'm out of the office notice. But he had been asking for a meeting with all the stakeholders by the I, so pretty much by the end of July. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it is a fun, it is kind of a goofy one-off story, but the federal government is very serious about this. Um, they don't have a sense of humor, unlike <laughs> some other folks. Uh, no, they're very serious, and they really want their lanterns back. And um, the, one, the one other funny part about this is that uh, in the letter they sent, it was addressed to the city of Wilmington's attorney, um, the Cotton Exchange's representation, and the county. And the county was like, what the hell is this? Like, we have, please don't involve us in this. 
yeah, it's it, it's all very, you know, it, it is serious for the Cotton Exchange because they're clearly very attached to these lanterns that um, appear to still be the property of the people of the United States. So, um, you know, in that regard, I, I can see it both ways. Yes, these have been here at the Cotton Exchange. They're part of, um, you know, they've been a piece of the property for, you know, half a century or whatever it may be. Um, but on the other side of things, they are federal property, meaning every taxpayer in the United States paid for them. Um, I'm not sure that, you know, people are okay with the a private entity getting that money. I know private entities get much more than, you know, bronze lanterns from, from more than 100 years ago or whatever it may be. Um, but at the end of the day, if it is the federal federal government's property, I mean, you can't really say no to that. Like the feds could come in with a you know, with their own backhoes and just pull them away. I'm not sure what, you know, the cotton exchange or the city would do. Are they going to, um, you know, chain themselves to the lantern? <laughs> I was so going to say, I somehow doubt, away? I somehow doubt that Mayor Bill Sappho is going to chain himself to one of these lanterns. <laughs> but here's the thing. Uh, we just have to wait and see because something is going to happen. Either the federal government will um, back down and basically say, okay, you can have them. Or they will come and get them, or they'll uh, reach some kind of agreement. Perhaps you and I joked about sawing these things in half, um, <laughs> King Solomon style. So, yeah. who and mounting them flush against the wall, maybe? I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, but it's definitely not over because the f- apparently, uh, no matter how long they've been in sitting in a field, the federal government eventually remembers about its property. Apparently, even its lamps. Even its lamps. All right, so let's uh, <laughs> changing tack here a little bit. Uh, we've got an update from Columbus County where y'all will remember um, there was protracted and racist shenanigans with former Sheriff Jody Green. And uh, Pratt, you were checking in on, I guess, some of the, the financial repercussions of that, the sort of the longer lasting shift in tone that's going on there. Yeah. So I was actually a uh, shout out to WECT, uh, my former stomping grounds for this one. Um, it's not a huge update, but I. Just to kind of go back over that, because I feel like so much has happened in the past, I don't know, what, six months. And this wasn't even this has been about six months or so, I think, um, since Jody Green resigned and uh, new sheriff Bill Rogers took over. Um, Again, we covered this ad nauseum when it happened because it was very important. Um, Former sheriff Jody Green was caught on. Uh, recording making racist uh, racist hate speech towards uh, black people and including really it was actually related more to black deputies within his own department. Yeah, um, yeah, and it was it uh, caused. <laughs> go ahead. I was going to say it was you know it was it was so damning that um, I, I believe it was Ann McAdams who actually finally got him on the phone and asked him about mm-hmm. this, and he he tried to pull a. Uh, it wasn't me, um, but it, it clearly was. So these, you know, we've talked a lot about allegations against, you know, various high-ranking officials in the Cape Fear region. This was way, this was thoroughly documented. John David, the district attorney for Columbus, Bladen, Brunswick County, put out a really, really damning, um, you know, document yes. that, that just put all of this together. So I, I don't even think we need, I mean, Jody Green might want us to, but I, we stopped using allegedly at a certain point because it was just so many witnesses and so many people saying, yeah, like, yeah, that's what he did. Yeah. Yeah. This was this, this stuff happened. Um, and they, there was a whole lot of, um, 
controversy surrounding it for obvious reasons. Um, but one of the big major implications that started back in October, this kind of really was kind of an October surprise um, before the elections, was funding from different organizations to the sheriff's office started drying up really quickly. Um, one of those was like the governor's they call it something different in every state, but like the Office of Governor's Highway Safety or something like that, um, which I think they they help pay for like the the programs like, you know, click it or ticket or, um, you know, DUI checkpoints, things like that during holiday weekends. Um, really, these like awareness campaigns and they bring a lot of money um, to local police and sheriffs. So that money really started drying up um, and there had been a little bit of animosity between uh, former Sheriff Jody Green and some of the some of the county commissioners before when when budgets were budget season was happening, not getting approved. Um, that's kind of what led to some of this fallout and the um, I will say allegations of intimidation um, because I can't say whether or not the, you know, what the true intent behind it was, but it does seem like an intimidation to have all your deputies lined out outside of a county commissioner's meeting right after you're supposed to vote for, you know, their pay increases. So long story short, Bill Rogers is the new sheriff and Columbus County, like everybody else is in there, you know, getting ready to approve their budgets or have already approved their budgets. Um, and, County commissioners just denied um, a pretty large request. It was $650,000 that would go towards employee salaries uh, for the, you know, the 2024-25 uh, fiscal year. Um, the budget does include more than $15 million for the sheriff's office. So it's not to say they're not getting money, but this was supposed to go towards employees uh, salaries and things like that, which we all know that, you know, public uh, you know, first responders, that sort of thing. It's been a big push to get them paid more because there's so much competition and not enough people wanting to do it. Um, but ultimately, county commissioner said no to that request. Um, the county manager here said that, uh, you know, in order to do that, the commissioners would have to raise property taxes or pull money from the general fund to afford the sheriff's request. Um, raising taxes is never a popular idea. Um, you know, regardless of what political party you are, um, it, it, it's never popular. Um, even, you know, even for those who support all of the, you know, the, the social programs you can think of when it, when it comes to brass tax and you have to see your property tax bill at the end of the year, um, most people don't enjoy seeing that go up. So I understand that portion of it, of not wanting to raise property taxes. The other side of it was, you know, the other idea was pull money from the general fund, um, which is certainly not unheard of. I mean, we've seen counties and cities um, across the state, across the country that, you know, dip into their general fund to afford to pay for certain things. And that just, you know, it just becomes a line item expenditure. Um, but you can't help but wonder if the commissioners are playing things a little cautious now after all of the fallout that's that's happened um, 
with Jody Green. And even though there's still a new sheriff and a new chief deputy um, within the department, uh, you know, are these deputies and these employees, the, the 911 dispatchers, whomever works under that sheriff's office, you know, detention centers. Um, did Jody Green's actions and subsequent fallout, you know, damage those employees potential to get their cost of living merit increases? Um, you know, this is this is more than just Jody Green at this point that I'm that I'm wondering about. And while the the argument was, no, we're, we're not going to, or the reasoning was, um, we're not going to raise taxes right now. Our, our citizens can't afford another tax increase at this time. And that's uh, Commissioner Laverne Coleman, basically, I'm paraphrasing there. Um, he did say, you know, there's no way we can talk bad about our sheriff and their deputies. Um, what they're doing right now, it's an outstanding job. So he did give them praise. Um, but then, you know, kind of hedge that by saying, yeah, but we still can't afford to do a tax increase. Didn't really seem like they mentioned, though, can we pull from the general fund? Um, so I'm I'm really more or less curious as to it. It just kind of feels like this is still some um, walking on eggshells when it comes to the sheriff's department. Um, you know, you just got rid of one. There's uh, there were allegations of other, um, you know, allegations against other employees and deputies within the ranks that weren't the sheriff. Um, so it, there could be a little bit of caution here is my thinking. Um, I don't know that that wasn't said, but it still is. Um, it, it's still worth looking at what the fallout of Jody Green is because despite him not being in office, um, the sheriff's office in Columbus County has uh, really has been tainted. Yeah, I think that's you know one to watch, and I know we have a we have a new reporter coming on in next month who will be covering helping us to cover Brunswick and Columbus County and some other rural areas, and that'll certainly be one of the things we watch. I am um, so I'm working on a story. I want to touch on this briefly, but there's a, there's more to unpack, and this has to do with what some folks have called the True Colors killings. We're talking about uh, the murder of Corey Tyson and uh, Brianna Williams at the house <laughs> of George Taylor the third. He was the uh, top officer at True Colors, son of George Taylor Jr., who founded True Colors. Um, this is, uh, it'll be two years in July, I believe, since the mm -hmm. killing. And in August, three men were arrested, uh, Raquel Adams, Amante Bell, and Irel Green. And uh, there was a little press conference. Ben David and Sheriff Ed McMahon um, put on a press conference and alleged that these three were all gang-affiliated members, um, affiliated with the Bloods Gang, which is a rival to the Gangster Disciples and the Folk Nation that, um, that Corey was a top lieutenant of. So basically saying that this was a gang-related hit. And right. so it's been two years. These guys have been in the New Hanover County Detention Center since August. And um, I've heard that some of them have been in solitary part of the time. And uh, mm -hmm. so that's, that's pretty tough. And so we came across this filing from February, it's taken the defense some time to actually get in front of a judge, this, and uh, they were finally able to do that on Monday. And what they allege is uh, is pretty shocking. So I don't want to make clear that this this is an allegation. Um, but during the uh, during the hearing, the lawyers said, "Look, this is not out of nowhere. This is a good faith claim that they believe is supported by the evidence." And the little bit of backstory here is: after the arrest, there's a bond hearing. You know, see. What your uh, what your bail would be? Um, all of these three 
guys have very high bails, you know, million plus bails. Mm-hmm. And during that hearing, apparently the defense attorneys didn't have all of the discovery that they wanted. So they didn't have access to all the things that might have helped them make a better case for their clients. And they were upset about that. And they had apparently filed some complaints and made, basically made some noise about that. So the prosecution turned over a bunch of things um, in response to that. And in, in that discovery was a PowerPoint presentation. Now, for reasons I'm about to explain, it's not really clear whether or not this was supposed to be turned over. Um, but what it, what it was was the presentation that was given to the grand jury to secure the indictments for these three guys. And under okay. North Carolina law, that should never see the light of day. Whether or not you like the law is a different story, but like there's a secrecy statute that basically says there are no exceptions. And we're one of the few states where the law is set up this way. In many other states, there are exceptions for questions of uh, constitutional claims. But North Carolina, it's a black box. So this is really rare. And the short version is there's there's a very detailed complaint that I, I'm still looking into, but they claim that there was one witness in front of the grand jury and mm-hmm. that he was a detective for the sheriff's office and that he effectively lied um, or, you know, or, or just gave really, really inaccurate information that was more damning than the truth would be. Um, they didn't out and out say the word lie. They, they repeatedly said, you know, misstatements, you know, factually inaccurate, materially untrue. Slice it any way you want. But they're saying that this detective perjured himself. Right. In front of the grand jury. And they've got really, really good evidence to back that up because they've got other things in discovery that directly contradict what's in the PowerPoint. Now, the, the prosecution, and it was, this was Ben David and um, uh, Assistant District Attorney Carricker were there, but Ben David did a lot of the talking, and he said, you know, under the law, we don't know if that PowerPoint was used in the grand jury because there is literally no record of what happened in there. And the defense mm-hmm. said, that's ridiculous. The PowerPoint is entitled, you know, grand jury presentation. It was last, they went into the metadata and found it had last been edited, um, like, right before the grand jury. Like, it was... And it was, had been open and, and was in the editing process for like 12 hours leading up to the grand jury day. And under oath at a subsequent hearing, that detective acknowledged that that was his work product, that he was the only one who had worked on it. But because of North Carolina's law, we have to pretend that we don't know any of that. And so wow. this, this is what the argument comes down to, is that the defense is arguing that this was a gross due process violation and that it may also be a Brady violation because if the detective later learned that he had testified to things that were not true, that would be exculpatory evidence and law enforcement is required under the Supreme Court decision, Brady and Giglio, to share that information with the defense, which they didn't. Right. Right. Now, this is a really tense case. There was lots of sparring between Ben David and the defense attorneys. Um, For example, the defense attorneys claimed that they never got a response to this filing, Ben David says, oh, said, oh, we put it in your lawyer box. We don't know what wrong. There was there was some snipping back and forth. And Ben David was clearly upset that this this is an allegation against one of his top detectives. Um, they, they are accusing him of lying. Um, they didn't use that word, but that's what this is. And Ben, ben David called it outrageously slanderous. So it, it was a heated hearing. In the end, the judge ruled that his interpretation of case law, and there is almost no case law because this is an ex- it's you almost never know what's happening in the grand jury, so there's not a lot of precedent. 
um, and, and both sides acknowledge that this specific situation is pretty much unprecedented in North Carolina. Um, now, right. federal law would have a lot different, a federal grand jury would go a lot differently. But in North Carolina, there's not a lot to base this on. So the judge, Kent Harrell, said, look, there's a grand jury is not a trial. So you don't have the same constitutional rights. You don't have the right to confront your accuser. It's And if there were to be some kind of alleged constitutional violation or other misconduct or perjury or something like that, that gets taken care of during the trial. So he he denied their request, which was just to dismiss all three murder charges um, because of this uh, alleged perjuring by the detective. Mm-hmm. Now, what's, I, I think this was the tension is that it may be the case that, I mean, this will definitely now come up in the actual hearing, you know, when yes. they actually go to trial. I can't imagine the defense will let this go. And they have a lot of other questions. I mean, they're really they're going to do their best to take the prosecution's case apart. That's their job. Mm-hmm. So we will hear about this perjury or alleged perjury during the trial. But I think the point that, you know, criminal justice reform folks would make is that this perjury, uh, this alleged perjury, was what secured the indictment. That seems to be the defense's claim. And had they not gotten this indictment, these three guys would not be in jail and they would not have been in jail for the last two years. They wouldn't have incurred all these legal fees. They wouldn't have had their lives derailed. Um, now, maybe the prosecution could have put together a better case or law enforcement rather could have put together a better case and gotten an indictment without whatever these alleged misstatements were. But two years is a long time as a putatively innocent person to spend in the New Hanover County Detention Center. And I think that's, you know, what some of the family members were really upset about was this just felt like the gospel of dark justice being preached here. Like this just felt really, really uncool. Um, to quote a uh, eight-year-old who was just one of the family members sitting there. And I think, you know, this murder case is obviously very interesting, but this idea about the absolute secrecy around the grand jury to me is just something that I think I I need to dig into a bit more because it is uh, weird and unusual. Most other states don't do it this way. I want to figure out where this came from and, and who in whose best interest is it that this is still the way that we're doing it. So I, I have so many questions about this, but it, just to clarify here, and yeah, I understand that, you know, it's still a legal proceeding. You, you shouldn't perjure yourself ever, but definitely not in a court hearing. Um, are you basically saying a prosecutor can walk in to a grand jury and say, you know what, Ben did a really bad story about me. I don't like him. We're going to tell this grand jury that Ben, you know, has, you know, this troubled history and just make things up. While we understand it's perjury, you know, that's that's a whole nother story. But if they make this up, convince a grand jury to send an indictment against you and that could have you thrown in jail for, you know, a for an accusation um, based off of, you know, what they're claiming is this evidence against you that just isn't true. Then you could go sit in jail for, you know, theoretically, however many years it takes for that to go to trial. Well, in the meantime, the prosecutors and the investigators then have all that much more time to make the case fit 
the facts that they gave to a grand jury, but the grand jury is not the baby jury, which sits in the courtroom. So nobody will ever know because this is all sealed. There's no watchdog accountability for this because we're not allowed in there. There's no recordings that I'm aware of of these grand juries. So essentially the the, the argument from the DA is anything goes and it doesn't matter. And the judge goes, yeah, that's fine. The truth will come out at trial. Well, if you have two years to then come up with evidence against these people, the right to a fair and speedy trial is no longer there. Yeah, I mean, so again, I got a lot more research to do, but from what I understand, there are no defense attorneys and no prosecutors in the grand jury, just witnesses um, that are, and there's a grand jury foreman who kind of uh, controls the process. But usually, from what I understand, usually, and I actually spoke to a couple officers um, because this was the most heavily uh, policed court hearing I've ever been to. At one point, there were 18 uniformed deputies and five or six uh, plainclothes officers and a couple of detectives in suits. So there were a good 25 badges in the room or waiting outside. Part of that had to do with the security risk. Um, there is, I've heard off the record, some concern that these three men could be victims of retaliation. But yeah, there were a lot of cops there. So what they told me is they've all been in these grand juries, and usually it's just cops talking to the grand jury. So, But cops work with the prosecutors. I mean, it's th- there isn't a firewall between police and prosecution. So to your point, if prosecution wanted to uh, string someone up on confabulated charges or made up charges or, you know, under under supported charges, they could basically work with law enforcement to, to do that and then try to find, you know, try to find witnesses, try to find evidence that would support it post hoc. So that could happen. I'm not alleging that can happen. I just think it's kind of crazy that there's no way to know because there's a difference between like, you know, you and I have covered stories that involved, um, you know, allegations of, you know, sexual abuse of children um, where they clear the courtroom. Mm-hmm. And there's a record of that, but it is redacted and sealed by the court. Mm-hmm. That's not the case here. There's just no recording. Yeah. So it's, that's, it, yeah. it just all seems so, so problematic because, again, you know, with witnesses, especially when law enforcement officers are your witnesses, um, and just like journalists there and just like everybody, there's confirmation bias. If you're called to talk about a case or, you know, a, a question that you fully believe, well, I don't quite have the evidence that Ben did what I think he did, but I'm going to be able to go in front of this group of 18 people who can hand down a true bill of indictment, you know, is it out of the question to, to suspect that someone might, you know, confabulate the facts a little bit to make sure they get the desired result, especially knowing that, you know, that that will likely never come out and that truth may never be known to that grand jury. I mean, it's problematic to say the least. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say is that if an officer or deputy were to, perjure himself or lie on the stand at some point. My hope is that Ben David's Giglio panel um, would Giglio that officer, which basically means they put him on a list where they're not allowed to provide testimony in court anymore because they've been proven untrustworthy. But if it happens in a grand jury, we'll never know. So Yeah, and, you know, we'll also never know if he ever puts anybody on that Giglio list because while there is a list... um, 
He won't share it with us. Yeah, that's true too. All right, or so no other no other district attorney in the state will. Yeah, um, so that's a whole nother story. But a lot there's a lot more to unpack here. I it was just a very interesting. Um, I think Ay and ECT were there, and they they covered the the very broad stroke, which was that there was a motion to remove this because an officer may have lied. But I I think there's just a lot more to unpack about the underlying statutes. I mean, this just seems like uh, it's it's. I put it this way. I asked Ben David once what he thought about um, creating a police oversight committee at the city level. And he said, there is a law enforcement oversight committee. It's my Giglio panel. Um, and this just seems like a huge hole, a huge chink in that armor. So, Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that kind of wraps up where we're at uh, this week. Like we said, a lot of stuff going on, a lot more to get to. Yeah. So again, uh, we will we'll have more on this next week. But for now, uh, we'll see you next week. All right.